Welcome back, everyone. So tonight's week five of our six-week class. And uh, if you missed any of the previous weeks, you can come up at the end. The handouts from the previous weeks are up here. There's a handout uh, most of you saw, it seems, out in the entranceway. And it's the handout for week five. It doesn't say that on it, but it's the instructions for the loving-kindness practice that we'll do later this evening. But I want to take a few minutes before we do our evening set just to review some of the content that's come up. You know, um, we have this intention when we do our formal meditation practice to um, do what can be done to cultivate, to allow to arise a beautiful, balanced, relaxed, clear, mind, heart. But often, I'm sure you've noticed, when we sit, you know, and have that formal intention to allow this balanced, calm, clear, loving mind to arise, that's not what arises. <laughs> you know, an irritated mind arises, or a dull mind arises, or a mind that's obsessing, wanting something arises, or a fearful mind irritated mind arises. So we have a lot of minds that arise, and many of those minds that arise in our practice, you know, it's pretty clear, this is not this is not what I signed up for. Why is this arising in my meditation practice? So I mentioned last week, briefly at least, that um, one of the most important tools we can have in our formal sitting time and, and generally, it's true in life, generally uh, in our daily life, too, is this understanding that, well, this is how it is. It's not a mistake that my mind or my life experience is this way now. And so it's almost like nothing can surprise us. Nothing seems inappropriate or wrong. So our mind may be sleepy, it may be restless, it may be obsessing with what we want, caught up in fear, maybe we may be lost in doubt. But there's not a surprise, it's just a recognition, well, I already know that this mind is conditioned, it has habits, and that different states of mind are going to arise depending on what has gotten triggered. And I know it doesn't sound like a you know a fearless weapon to use to manage our different afflictive states of mind, but it's amazingly powerful to have that perspective because what throws us off when our when we do have some afflictive mind state, negative mind state, what throws us off surprisingly. I mean, it, it sounds surprising to hear it. What throws us off is we're shocked by it. <laughs> You know, and and we feel like either either we get immediately consumed or seduced by it, or we're shocked that somehow I'm angry. Like I don't want to be angry. I want to be calm. I don't want to be thinking about tomorrow. I just want to be resting in the present moment. I don't want to be full of doubt. I want to just trust that things are the way that they are. And somehow, what's arising doesn't fit our preconceived idea of what practice is or what the meditation should look like. 
and we get thrown off balance. We basically lose our practice. Practice is balance. It's it's a, a way of being, a way of relating that's in balance, meaning it doesn't expect things to be any particular way. So any particular way that it is is okay. So this is our, in a sense, our first line of defense. And you can even use the first few minutes as you're settling in. Then, you know, and you're kind of composing the body. And then just remind yourself. I mean, you might even have a sentence or two that says something like, anything can happen. Any thought, any memory can arise. Anything that can be thought can arise. So it may be beautiful. It may be despicable, <clears throat> maybe really heavy, maybe really energizing, but basically anything can happen, and that will be my practice. My practice will be to know that this is happening, this is like this, the mind is like this, the body's like this, and to ex- explore like what would skillfulness, <coughs> what would be the wise way of relating to how it is now, this mind, this body. I don't know if I mentioned, I don't think so. Sharon Salzberg has this nice image about the tightrope. Did I mention the tightrope? Oh, okay. So that's part of this, is like this capacity to take a step back. No matter how caught up, no matter how defensive the mind is, no matter how helpless the mind appears to be, there is a way to step back and recognize, well, it's, it's just this. Being helpless is like this. Being negative is like this. This is the most powerful defense, the most powerful way to flip a negative way of being into a positive way of being. Because the mind that says, oh, of course, it's just this. And that's, by the way, a nice phrase to remind yourself, the words, of course. So you recognize that the mind is reactive or caught up in some way, and you just, oh, Of course. Of course. It's like this now. Because what you're doing is you're helping the mind recognize that given the immensity of causes and conditions, of course, this is how it is. Not surprised. Of course. And it, it just flips the attitude from a negative, reactive, narrow point of view to a very expansive point of view that includes everything, includes all possibilities. Because, you know, we've been there already. Every mind in this room has visited really negative, despicable states and very exalted, beautiful, calm, peaceful, loving states of mind, right? All of us have explored, you know, much of the spectrum. And we know that that's, all of that is possible. So, of course, whatever it is, of course. And we don't turn it into a self-centered trip if it's really beautiful, the particular moment, or really difficult. Now that's a subtle approach to challenges or to distractions or difficulty that arise in our sitting practice. But we want to start subtle, you know, before we bring out the heavy guns, like running out of the room. <laughs> we want to just start subtle, which is, it's like, a, it's a mindfulness move. It's like stepping back and saying, of course, oh, it's just this. Well, can this be okay? So not assuming that it's unworkable. 
even though in a way every conditioned instinct, every habit is telling us this is not okay, this is not workable, the mind says, well, maybe it's okay. Maybe it not being workable is okay. So we're not trying to convince ourselves that it is workable, but that the experience of it not being workable can be accepted. <coughs> I don't need to close down my mind, shut off my heart, tighten up, just because the moment the experience appears to be unworkable. I can relax with that experience. It's not workable. And that just immediately starts to bring space into the mind. There's a funny story. I'm not sure I mentioned this story about the 84th problem, about the farmer who goes to see the Buddha. It's a joke, basically. It's not a real story about the Buddha, but here, here's how it goes. You know, so a farmer goes to see the Buddha and starts to complain about the weather and about his wife and about his kids and about insects eating his plants and, you know, on and on like this. And he asks the Buddha for help. And then the Buddha says, well, you know, everybody has 83 problems. And, you know, even if I could, you know, help you with one of your problems, you just get another problem because it's just how it is. Everybody has 83 problems. And the farmer starts to freak out a little bit. You know, I've traveled all this way to see you. Everyone says you have some real wisdom. And you just tell me everybody has 83 problems. How does that help me? And the Buddha, of course, being moved, compassionate, arises and he says, okay, I can't help you with your 83 problems, but I can help you with your 84th problem. And what's his 84th problem? He doesn't like having 83 problems. <laughs> and this is that move. It's like when the mind is afflictive, it could be very easy. Like we just don't like the way the body feels sitting still there on the cushion or on the chair. So it could be very simple affliction that we have. It doesn't have to be some deep, painful memory, although they happen also, right? So we have our own set of 83 problems. You're tired, we're hungry, we want this, we want that. We want that calm that we heard about, you get in meditation practice. And then we realize, well, I may or may not be able to do anything about these 83 problems, but I might be able to do something about not liking or about you know having 83 problems and that's the 84 that's like solving the 84th problem which is letting this mind body be letting the moment express itself let the body mind moment express itself as it actually is so we're relating in a particular way we're relating to the present moment the, this physical, mental moment in a way that allows it to be the way that it is. It doesn't mean we like it. So it's not, we're trying to pretend that we like the way the mind is or the way the body is. But we'll realize it's an actual insight. It's a realization. It's not what we're used to. That actually, even though it's unpleasant, or even though I want to grasp it because it's pleasant, we realize that it's possible to just let the mind, body, to let reality be the way that it is. It's like a different universe in a way. Because so much of the time, almost all of the time, at least all the time that we're conscious, we're reacting 
in subtle and not so subtle ways to the present moment. So it really feels like a mystical or an unusual experience when we have a moment of mindfulness, a moment of complete, clear acceptance. It's not a familiar experience. So it will stand out when you just let the body be, let the mind, the content, the emotion, just to let it be. It's not a backing away. It's not like we're denying or like sticking our head in the sand. So there's a vivid, remember we're cultivating the alertness. So there's a vivid presence, very, real clarity with how it is, like very clear that this is unpleasant or this is great. But the mind isn't adding anything to the pleasantness, the unpleasantness or the neutrality of the present moment. It's just letting things be. It's like a, a move we didn't realize we have. You know, we know what it's like to be aversive and reactive. We know what it's like to be craving and wanting and, you know, strategizing to get. We know what it's like to turn our attention away from because it's not important. Like, when's the last time you felt the sensations in the small of your back? You know, we're very good at ignoring. I mean, we actually have sensations, you know, everywhere on the, on the surface of the body. but. We're very good at ignoring most of the sensations of the body most of the day. So this is not ignoring and it's not trying to get and it's not trying to get rid of. It's being really present with the pleasant or unpleasantness, but just letting it be. And then when this doesn't work, you know, when that sort of basic subtle move, the basic move of opening, and letting be doesn't work. When that is too subtle and the mind's already caught up in whatever's difficult, then we have a whole series of practices that we can, in a sense, pull out to use to relate, to help us better relate to what might be difficult. So again, I'm just reviewing that often in meditation and daily life, it's challenging. We're challenged by the arising experience. And we shouldn't be surprised because that's just how life is. So that's how meditation practices. Meditation is just a microcosm of life. It's not a different kind of you know, reality. It's just sort of a very specific or um, more high, more refined normal experience. We have fewer distractions. So it sort of life stands out in relief because it's more refined, quiet environment in our meditation. And so we have that first move, which is no matter what's happening, just assume it's workable and practice opening to it. Practice allowing it to express itself, let it be. If that doesn't work, then, you know, then we can practice with it. So we see, we actually look at the difficult thing. We try to basically pinpoint it. What actually is happening in the present moment? What actually does the mind not like? What is it that the mind doesn't want to feel or see or hear? Yeah. And we do just the opposite of our conditioned habit, right? which is to run or fix or grab. We practice sort of, if it's pleasant, we practice letting go knowing that it's going to come and go, right? If it's unpleasant, we practice getting close to it, right? So we're, we're sort of challenging our conditioned response and seeing, we're sort of 
now we're encouraging. The first step is just to open. But if that doesn't work, then we're challenging the conditioning, the habit energy. And basically, you know, the, the experience, whether it's physical or mental, it's either going to be neutral, pleasant, or unpleasant, right? So if it's neutral, the conditioned response is to ignore it. So now we're practicing, so we're going to practice getting interested in what our mind is, is, is conditioned to ignore. So uh, you're sitting, nothing's happening, you're bored, you have a strong distraction saying, this is, nothing's happening, I'm not learning anything. So we're going to cultivate interest in the breath. Challenge the notion that just because the breath is an ordinary phenomenon, I can't pay attention to it. We're going to challenge that. If it's unpleasant, you know, we want to control it or get rid of it, then now we're going to, like, uh, put down our defenses. Come, take me. Let me be the first person to die because of restlessness in the body, you know? Let me be the first person to die of knee pain. I mean, once we've assessed that the knee pain actually isn't going to harm the knee, because some pains, you know, aren't good to sit with because we're actually doing damage to the joint or to the back. But that, the majority of the pain, especially once you've sat enough and you can distinguish between what's harmful to the body and what's just a, an unpleasant sensation, especially for the amount of time you're sitting, then you can really be sort of fearless. Okay, I'll be the first person to die. I'll see what actually happens when the mind relaxes and allows this pain to be what it is, to allow it to move. Because the, the fear, the aversion is like we want to control it. It's like there's this painful sensation. What we do is we create a tension. It's like a wall. But actually, we're just adding more unpleasant sensation we're resisting, but we're just, we can't actually resist it because it's the way that it is. The knee aches like this. The only real thing to do is, of course, stretch out your leg. And that's always okay to move your back, stretch out your leg if it's physical pain. But sometimes there's not going to be anything we can do about physical pain. And we're trying to have insight how to relate to pain when there's nothing we can do about it. So that's why we hold still for 30 minutes, for example. We don't avert the attention. We open to it. We practice that. And then when it's pleasant, we remember that it's going to go away. You know, they're feeling really calm, and we understand calm will come, and it goes. We don't try to hold it. We don't try to strategize how to make this last forever. We understand that everything comes and goes. And you can even repeat that in this mind. You can recognize, oh, this is pleasant, and it's just pleasantness. Everything comes and goes. This too will come and go. It's just pleasantness. So instead of like building that castle in the sky, I feel good, I'm always going to feel good. I mean, we set ourselves up all the time. We fall in love, you know, in big ways we fall in love, and then <coughs> whatever exalted feelings we have <coughs> in that first flush of love, we have some deluded notion it will always be this way. We get a massage or we do some yoga or have a nice run and our body just feels great, you know? And we, we have this kind of diluted notion, it's always going to be this way. And then we wake up the next day and we feel heavy and tight and we feel disappointed. It's like we got identified with the pleasantness 
and then it crashes. Or something good happens in the world, and it warms our heart, and we just have this deluded notion that the world is all rosy. And then we read the next article, and we realize, no, it's all screwed up. But we realize, we don't remember that, well, it's both. There are beautiful things happening, and there are really terrible things happening. It's always this way. So we don't let ourselves get attached or identified to the beautiful things. We still let it in. We want to be mindful of it. We don't want to be afraid of joy and beauty. Really let it in. But we don't want to let it be more than what it is. We don't want it to delude the mind. That's what happens when good things happen to us. We indulge in it. And indulging in it, I mean we imagine that our reality has changed because something beautiful is happening. It could be quite simple, you know. We're hot, it's humid, and a cool breeze sort of passes by, and we feel relief. And we we don't even necessarily be conscious of it, but we have some deluded notion that I've been freed from the humidity, you know. And then, of course, it comes back. You know, we have a nice day, and then it's back. Or it's like winter's back now, you know. We're probably enjoying the warmth, some of it at least, but now it's cold. And we can be, like, shocked <laughs> that winter is coming back. Like, and, and it feels like a personal insult. Like I mentioned this in the past weeks. So <clears throat> cultivating the opposite light, we're basically inviting the mind to relate to the particular experience in the opposite way that we're conditioned to relate to it. So when aversion, when the conditioned response is aversion or fear, Bring in loving kindness. And that's why we're going to work with that tonight. When the conditioned response is, ah, like indulging is assuming in an ignorant way that it's going to be here forever for us, remind the mind it's an impermanent phenomenon. Whatever it is that we like, pleasant thought, pleasant sensation, it's just an impermanent phenomenon. It will be here for a while, and then inevitably it will pass away. And then we relate to the pleasantness, the beauty, in a different way. And when it's neutral, we remind ourselves that this is our life. That there's something very beautiful in a refined way, very beautiful about uh, that vivid opening presence with what's neutral. More than the, the first two, which are very powerful, like to open to what we're afraid of and averse to, and to not get attached to what's pleasant and beautiful, more profound than that is to learn to discover that the mind can be vividly present, awake, to what's ordinary. Because that's a deep, deep conditioning to disconnect to what's ordinary. And in doing that, of course, we lose most of our life, because most of our life is ordinary. And it's like we, the mind literally is disconnected. The heart is shut off for most of our life because of some deep habit of our ha and of our conditioning that says, if it's ordinary, it doesn't matter. And of course, the more we cultivate not aversion to what's painful and not attachment to what's pleasant, the more ordinary everything is. So you see why it's really important as we learn not to be tripped up by pleasant experience and unpleasant experience. We really need that capacity to be vividly awake, present, with this loving presence with ordinariness. 
it's like we're allowing the personality to blossom in ordinary life. And that arises when, you know, it's, it's like an act of generosity. We're giving the mind, the heart, to the present moment. We're learning how to fully show up. So when we're watching the breath, you know, that's, you know, the obvious, neutral, ordinary experience. There's nothing jazzy about the breath or body sensations or ordinary sounds of traffic and the fan blowing and people moving. There's nothing pleasant or deeply unpleasant about those things. So when we get some of that continuity of mindfulness with the ordinary anchor in our meditation practice, you'll see how profound it is to, I mean, there's really no end to how, you know, we think, oh, I'm already showing up, but actually we're kind of showing up. And then we can kind of show up a little bit more than we used to show up. But there's really no end. It's like, like uh, we can always, we should always imagine that we can show up more fully, more completely. Don't assume you're already showing up to your breath, to the sound, to the sensations in the body. We're, even in our relationships, you know, and, and our jobs and the things we do in life, you know, we may think we're committed, we may think we're really showing up, we may think we're vividly present, but we're kind of, you know, operating in the 5 to 10% range, probably. Really. You know, we're there, and then we're lost, and then 30 seconds later, there's a half second where we're there, and then we're kind of obsessing about some aspect of having been there. You know, so we, have, we might have a moment of presence, but then there could be, you know, a hundred thousand moments where the mind is reacting to that one moment of being present before it touches down or connects again with reality at the moment. I'll talk more about loving kindness, but let's uh, stretch our legs and we'll sit for 30 minutes. Do what you need to to feel comfortable. And then when you feel like you're ready, just come into what for you feels like a stable posture. Just do the best we can with the posture, of course. <clears throat> Nobody will be completely immune to unpleasant sensations. Once you begin to settle in, you might want to do several of those long, deep breaths in and out. Really take your time. It's a very effective, beautiful way of shifting gears, which is the, you know, a general tendency is to be rushing. So to be consciously breathing in slowly, deeply, in a very easeful way.
without rushing it or pushing it or straining is not how we're normally relating in the moment. And if it's a particularly stressful time for you, then you can even do this deep breathing for five or ten minutes as the first part of your meditation. But doing at least a couple is probably a good idea. Showing a real interest in the actual mechanics of the lungs filling up and then emptying out. And really exploring how much air can be comfortably, easefully brought in and how much air can be comfortably, easefully exhaled out. Maybe one more of these long, easy breaths. And then eventually let the breath continue on its own and let go of any need to control it. The body, of course, knows how to do the breathing. And just opening to the experience of hearing. Let the mind become open and receptive. Remembering this possibility of resting, just resting in the experience of hearing to begin with. Not needing to be personally responsible for the sounds, just receptive, sensitive. Simply knowing that hearing is like this now. You can have that same open, receptive relationship with the body now. The predominant sensations in the body and all the other less distinct, less predominant sensations. So the whole range like a great ocean of sensation. Feeling the whole body together. 
without needing to deny or push away unpleasant sensations, learning how to be undefended, open, very simple, clear, knowing that the body is like this. This is what's meant by acceptance, this simple knowing, willingness to know or to feel. So then if you want in a more specific way, bringing this receptive, open attention to the movement of the breath and the body. Wherever it's easy to feel the natural movement of the breathing process and to be actually interested in the ordinary sensations of the breathing process. Cultivating a continuity of mindful attention. Willing to begin again and again whenever that continuity is disturbed or broken. And of course, when strong distractions arise, just let them become the objects of meditation. So not getting seduced by the content of thought, but noticing that thoughts are just thoughts. Feeling any pain or unpleasantness associated with the thoughts or the emotions. Learning to not be afraid of disturbances, whatever they might be. So we're going to continue in silence now for the rest of the set.
willing to begin again.
no matter how caught up the mind gets at times. Notice how it's always possible to notice that, oh, it's like this now. It's always possible to return to the present moment knowing, oh, the mind and body, it's like this now. Can this be okay? of continuity of mindful attention with the primary object, the breath, sensation, sound. And now for the last minute or so, if you'd like to open your eyes, and we're just noticing the sensitivity, the body and mind. Remember the two qualities of practice, a vivid, alert presence, and a deep ease or releasing or letting things be.
appreciating how stillness of the body is a very powerful technique when we invite the body to be still all of a sudden we notice all the impulses to move and is it possible to be okay with the impulse without acting on it to let the impulses come and go without acting on them like to use the gesture to end your practice and then without rushing it take some time to stretch out your legs any way that feels good for you and as I've mentioned in the past weeks it's really nice to hear from people and in particular tonight uh, would be nice if anybody tried the formal walking meditation practice to share your thoughts, what you learned, what was useful or not so useful for you. Also, it would be really nice to hear from people around in your sitting practice, different experiences of obstacles or challenges that arose for you, how you sort of transform that difficulty into practice and then what happened. So successes, failures, in terms of obstacles. That's a second. And then the third thing you might share now in our discussion time is um, anybody who's had some experiences with continuity. So when it feels like the mind does come into some balance, there is an alertness and a relaxation in the mind. And then there's some continuity. It's not just happening in one moment, but there's a moment of that balance and a moment of that balance and a moment of that balance. And what was that experience like for you? And then what got in the way of it? How did it change or get disturbed? So, of course, anything is appropriate to bring up any kind of questions, but it'd be nice to touch the walking practice, working with obstacles, and experiences with continuity, the development of concentration and how that's looked in your experience. So please say your name if you decide to share. I'd like to go first.
forgot how to walk almost. It, was, yeah. it didn't feel like walking anymore. It felt like something else. Yeah. Because we're so used to doing walking on automatic pilot that when we do it as a, a very intentional act, because we're there, awake, vividly present with it, it's like, we don't know what it is. <laughs> so what's did you do? And, yeah. And what's stepping? Yeah, and the Buddha said that as much too. He said that walking practice is uh, that the fruits of walking practice uh, easily sort of gets integrated into daily life practice. So it's a really good thing to do. And you mentioned a lot of good things about the walking practice, Barbara, like the fact that the anchor is more rich in a way because we're moving the body, there's seeing, there's hearing part of the experience and so it engages the mind the mind's less likely to want to wander because the anchor the uh, what we're paying attention to is more rich and and obvious in walking practice yeah so did you walk in your backyard or at a park or? Uh-huh. did you give yourself a lane and just walk back and forth or how did you do it there was there's that there was a pathway that was going through some trees and i just Oh, great. Thanks for sharing that. And I have the handouts if you didn't get it. It's the, probably the second packet here if you didn't get the walking practice instructions. Other comments people have? Yeah. Uh, my name is Matthew. Um, this is more of a comment. I just found that my left foot falling asleep kind of seems like the perfect metaphor for the path in general. It's like the more I struggle against it, Yeah. And it's good to know that, I mean, there are some times when the nerve, a nerve is getting squeezed or pressed up against in a way that causes what we call falling asleep, that it's not good. And that would be is when you stand up and start moving around, the sensations, the tingling sensations linger for 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes afterward then clearly you should be sitting in a different way. But if it disappears very quickly, you don't need to worry about doing damage to your body. At least that's what I understand. And uh, so it's best to do what Matt, Matthew, is that what you said, Matthew? Suggested, which is uh, notice it when it first sort of arises because your attention's going to want to go there. But then practice coming back to the anchor. Remember, we don't always have to pay attention to what's difficult, even if it's predominant. Because a lot of times, we don't have enough spaciousness in the mind or concentration or calm in the mind to actually look at unpleasant experiences. We're just going to get agitated and struggle with it. So oftentimes, with difficult experience, it's better to just notice that it's there and then come back to a neutral anchor for the attention. We can always go back to the difficult experience when there's more concentration and then explore. But now we're exploring it not in an aversive point of view, but we're just actually interested in it. We have enough calm, enough contentment that the attention can look at the experience without 
being disturbed by the unpleasantness of it. But if all we do is look at unpleasant experience, it won't be long before we're overwhelmed by it. If we don't have enough perspective, enough calm. Thanks, Matthew. Yeah. I wanted to, my name is Jeannie, and I wanted to say that about the walking uh, meditation, is that it was the first thing that came to mind is that there's a lack of pain. And, um, and for me, I had never meditated without pain before, so I was like, oh, now I'm, what was missing was the piece that go, brings me back to my anchor, which is usually pain. Yeah. And so then, if I didn't have pain, I found I wandered more. And longer, I didn't notice it for a long time, you know, because there was no recall back to the anger for me. And so I thought it would be easier, but it was harder. Yeah. Because it was it was so comfortable, and movement is all about comfort, really. Well, and you mentioned a lot of important things, like uh, pain is very useful in practice, especially initially, because it it wakes us up. Now, one of the things, and there are different ways to do walking practice, but the tradi traditional way is you have a lane, and what breaks the distraction in walking practice is you get to the end of the lane. And then, yeah, so when you stop, that's the time you, then you can wreck, oh yeah, I've been thinking. You know, and then you, you take that few seconds of stopping to really come back into the physicality of standing, of turning, and then you're back with the lifting and the placing with the, at the beginning. And then it can be almost like a game, like a, a wholesome game, like to really see if you can stay with the, just the simple lifting and placing and be really interested where the mind gets lost, drifts off into thinking, and what's the trigger? What's the actual cause for the mind losing its interest in lifting and placing? It's very curious how the mind does, no matter how strong our resolve, it often does. But we can, that can actually energize the mind and help with the continuity. So how about people, any experiences with some periods of time where there is more continuity and you notice what we call samadhi, the sort of coming together of the mind, the concentration coming together, or sometimes we call it the unification of the mind or heart as it gets concentrated? Does anybody have those? Moments strung together, continuity of attention. Yeah. I've had a couple of those, and it's my ego that gets in the way because I'm patting myself on the back. Yeah, and then when soon as you start patting yourself on the back, you're not doing. <laughs> and I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So, what was your experience before you um, got attached? It was pretty profound, actually. It was um, opening and it was intense and fairly short because, again, I. Yeah, but what's interesting about, what's your name? Melissa. Melissa. What's interesting about what Melissa said, fairly quick, meaning it doesn't take too many moments in a row where the mind is in that balance before it gets intense. Intense in the sense that it's not like a usual experience. It's, it's sort of unfamiliar, which is why attachment gets triggered, because the mind isn't used to having this much energy. It's used to us dissipating the energy of the mind all the time to various distractions, you know, where the mind is fragmented. It's, in a sense, multitasking. And it, it dissipates the energy of the mind. So when the mind gets really still, just doing one thing, collecting itself in that one thing, just knowing the breath, just knowing, hearing, mind, moment of mindfulness followed by a moment of mindfulness, the energy builds very quickly. And it takes skill, 
to be relaxed with that buildup of energy and not get attached and then pat ourselves on the back or whatever. Thanks for sharing that. Other thoughts? We've got a few more minutes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And this is, a, this is another classic experience because, as I mentioned, it's unfamiliar. And it's, it's more than just unfamiliar. It's the kind of the conditioned mind recognizes something in those moments of stillness. It notices that it, is, it isn't there. <laughs> it isn't needed. You know, the kind of self-projection isn't needed. And that's deeply disturbing for the sort of conditioning of the self, you know, that it's like extra. So it can it can actually feel uh, that the energy that can arise is almost like a fear of death can come up for people. But all you have to do is remind yourself, I'm not doing anything dangerous here. I'm just cultivating a simple, clear, relaxed attention to the breath or sensation or hearing or whatever you're working with as your anchor you know, for the attention. So I don't need to worry. There's nothing inherently dangerous. It's just not the way the mind is used to experiencing. That's it. That's all it is. But there isn't anything actually dangerous. But it does appear to be threatening. And it's, in a sense, it's a good sign. I mean, you have to work with the fear that it may take some while to have it enough times that at some level the ego realizes there's nothing dangerous here. We don't, it's not like anybody or any practice is going to destroy the ego. It's more like the ego begins to understand how it is. The ego is only afraid of sort of its dissolution when it doesn't understand what's going on. But when it understands what's going on, it's not afraid of getting quiet. It's not afraid of letting go. But initially, it's afraid of letting go. Just like you probably, some of you were old enough, or you know, back in the day when people used drugs. <laughs> you know, people have bad drug experiences because they, you know, the, the effect of the chemicals or whatever, uh, it does something to the mind. And the mind gets someplace where it's not used to being. And it freaks out the mind. But eventually, in this practice, which is you know, obviously a lot safer because things don't happen as suddenly, we're opening to different kinds of experience. You could even say different kinds of reality in the sense of not having been there before. So it's new. But it's generally very gradual. So not everybody's going to have that kind of experience. But for the people for whatever reason that's sort of open more quickly or haven't been used to it, it can that fear of death can come up in meditation practice. But it's okay. You just keep revisiting it at the pace that feels comfortable to you. And you'll see that the mind gets used to it and it actually grows to love it. And 
And then you have to worry about with, uh, forget your name already, Melissa mentioned, you know, which is attachment, you know. And it sounded the way you described that you kind of had both, both sort of wanting to kind of maintain it, but also a deep fear coming up. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Time for maybe one or two more comments. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not a personal thing, but uh, I just wanted to share the last couple of Monday nights. Um, Kathy and I has a program in the evening called Health Notes, and the last two weeks, this past Monday and the Monday before, the um, the guests that were on the show um, had something to say about mindfulness and meditation, and they're available as podcasts. I hope this isn't like to add. <laughs> I, 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 I've got like no investment, <laughs> but just I've made a note to myself and something I'm hoping to get to this week is to listen to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I caught snippets when it was happening on the radio, but I wasn't able to listen to the whole program. It's just, it's just, you know, it's more good information. Yeah. Uh, it's a, the amazing wealth of information on the internet and a lot of static, you know, stuff that sort of is close that will probably be confusing and and get you off track, but a lot of really good stuff. I mean, we live in an amazing time where basically all of their best teachers have great teachings available on the internet, you know, or most of them at least. That you can listen to Dharma talk any night. I'm, all of our talks at the center are on the internet, free to download. All of the other teachers in this tradition, you know, there's several websites that have talks, you know, all the senior teachers, so it's really an amazing time. And there's a, a shadow to all that accessibility to information, too, which is the best teacher is our own practice, our own experience. So, you know, we need the information to inspire us, to kind of give us some maps that we then apply to our experience to help us get close, to help us Learn to work with what's arising in the moment. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. One more comment or question? Anything else? Well, let's leave. Yeah, Bobby. Uh, yeah, just last week uh, on Sunday, I had uh, three hours a day. I enjoyed it. And later on in the afternoon, I kind of wanted to get back at the end of the night. I sat there and meditated for another two hours. Then later on, I found myself kind of like well, not too much, you know, right meditation, but sometimes in meditation, we're doing something that looks like meditation and is pleasant, but what we're really doing is cultivating a trance state. And it can be difficult to tell the difference between meditation and trance states. And trance states can kind of, it can make us a little stupid uh, and dull. <laughs> because basically what we're doing is we're cultivating tranquility for its own sake. And uh, when there's no energy in the mind, just tranquility, we get into like a stupor. And it's pleasant. It's, it's sort of a semi-dreamlike, waking dreamlike state. And they can be even sort of weird. I mean, sort of like dreams can be weird. You know, dreams can be all, all over the place, right? And so there are literally probably infinite uh, qualities of trance states that we can get in. And one of the telltale signs of a trance state is it's like having taken drugs, you know. We're a little bit out of it when we come back. 
just like sometimes when you ha- have a real deep dream, you know, you come, get woken out of the dream, it takes a while to kind of, for the effect of the dream state to sort of clear out of the mind. And you can be a little out of it even for half a day. And it's the same, like if you're doing a lot of that. And the telltale sign, Bobby, is three hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. It's not easy to maintain alertness and relaxation and any kind of balance for that length of time. Even if you're sort of building up to it, you know, it's not that easy. So, uh, you know, in the monasteries and at retreats, generally people would do an hour or maybe two hours of sitting, and then they'd go walk and do walking meditation for an hour, and then sit for an hour, walk for an hour, because it really helps the person avoid getting into trance states. And even some styles of practice, you know, they don't keep the sits long at all. Like if you go to a Zen session, you know, 35, 40 minutes, then then you got to walk for 10 minutes. Because they don't, they know that if, very few people can sit for a long, long time and maintain that balance. Generally, if you're sitting still for too long, unless you're really good at maintaining the energy in the mind, which you can, generally you, all that's happening is tranquility and no energy. And after the first hour or whatever, after the second hour, the mind is kind of in a trance-like state. And then if you find that's happening, it's best just to stop and do walking practice or some kind of movement practice. If you want to continue, because you know the practice is great, but then maybe do cleaning practice. You know, go clean the bathroom in a mindful way, or do some walking, go to a park, do some walking practice, or mindful exercise, or mindful study. You know, you sit down in a nice, comfortable, relatively upright chair, get yourself a nice cup of green tea, and you take out a really inspiring Dharma book, you know, and you read something about the meditation practice. So. There are different components that you can, like if you want to really have a retreat day, but incorporate all the different pieces, the study, the movement meditation, work meditation, and sitting meditation. And chanting, for some people, really like the chanting. It's another thing that we can do to energize, sort of keep the energy balance. Because otherwise, energy tends to lessen, and all we get is tranquility and trance states and stupors. So, just a quick question about sure. that subject. Um, so you said there's lots of different trance states. So I'm guessing like if you were doing that a lot, each um, session might feel like a slightly different experience. But if you're alert, if you're in the mindfulness, and so you're in balance between awareness and tranquility, does that always feel the same, or can that feel different? Well, yeah, that will feel very different because if you're if you have that balance with a really exalted state, it's going to feel one way. If you have it with pain in the body, it will feel another way. If it's very subtle pain, it will feel a different way. You know, so mindfulness has a particular quality, which is uh, when it's really strong, which is it has the taste of freedom. But the outer characteristics can, because mindfulness can be applied to any moment however it is. So it will be both sort of a paradoxical experience of being free with this. But this could be all over the board. But the freedom, especially when the mindfulness gets stronger, that's what you will remember. That, oh, there was no suffering there. There was no friction in that experience. So what actually was being known is less important than that it was being related to in a free way. 
in an unobstructed way. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, before our sit, that uh, you know, one of the most predominant parts of our conditioning is aversion and fear. I mean, we just have an infinite number of ways to express aversion and fear, irritation, impatience, boredom. These are all aspects of aversion, really. And because it's such a predominant part of our conditioning, people, many, many people from the time of the Buddha on, and maybe even more important in our culture today, some people say, I mean, as much as they can understand that, the predominant defilement at the time of the Buddha was greediness. But today, the predominant defilement is maybe aversion and fear in our minds. I mean, clearly we have a lot of greed, but, you know, maybe more fear and aversion and impatience and things like that. So when it's not possible for us just to see that aversion is just aversion and to see it come and go and to be done with it, it probably means that we need to develop the opposite of aversion in order to create the space to see it clearly. So what's the opposite of aversion? Well, it's loving kindness. So there's developed in Buddhist practice and most, you know, spiritual traditions, different ways of directly cultivating what you would call universal love. So not a desire or a love with an attachment, you know, like I love my cat, but a, a universal love, like the basic friendliness of the mind or heart. And uh, the instructions on the table outside is what we call metta, or which is a word for friendliness, or usually translated as loving kindness. And it is this universal emotion. This is an emotion actually that's there when aversion is out of the mind. So it, ultimately, it isn't something we cultivate. But to, in a way, to find our way back to it, we formally cultivate it. And we cultivate it by bringing to mind somebody easy to love. We always start where it's easy. And generally, that means not a complicated relationship. So you may love your partner, or you may love your mom, but probably it's a complicated relationship. So it's good not to use those relationships initially in the practice. Somebody like who was, who's been a really been there for you, like a mentor, you know, even your high school teacher that you know respected you even when you didn't respect yourself, or something like that. Or it even could be somebody you don't know. There could be some figure you know about who you just have a lot of unconditioned respect, gratitude, love for. In any case, you bring somebody to mind. I used to bring to mind my uncle Fred, who we used to visit out in Montana. He grew up, I mean, he lived on the ranch that my dad grew up on. And we just had great times going out there. And he was just such a sweet guy. And for much of my youth, he was a bachelor. He was my dad's younger brother. And so he loved us. You know, he didn't have his own kids. <laughs> and he loved us unconditionally. And I really felt that. And uh, so I'd just bring my Uncle Fred to mind. And he would be my first person I would develop my practice with. Or I'd bring one of my, my uh, Dharma teachers to mind. And people who just, I, I really saw how the practice had worked in their life. I had a lot of respect for them. So appreciative of their capacity to teach me what was so useful in my life. So I bring them to mind. So you bring somebody to mind. You fill your heart. And these are, I'm just repeating what's written in the instructions so you can read them at home. 
So you bring the person to mind. You remember them, especially their beautiful qualities. You remember their smile. If you can visualize them, all the better. A strong capacity to visualize them really helps this practice, as if they're right there. And then in your heart, in a sense, you have a felt sense, like you're right there. And if it's appropriate, you'd be even like you can even sort of feel like you're being embraced by this person, depending on your relationship with the person. So you see the person, you feel that connection, and then out of that, the energy of remembering the person, feeling your heart center, no matter how it feels. So your heart may feel numb, it might feel locked up, it may feel radiant and loving, doesn't matter. You just feel the heart, the energetic heart center, remember the person, and then you begin to repeat a phrase or a set of phrases. And the repetition of the phrase is very important, especially in the beginning, because you need this container to discover this authentic kindness. So it's like you're priming the pump. So the traditional phrases might be, first, some kind of wish for the person, for the being's safety. May you be safe. May you be free from danger. Right? So the words themselves don't matter. Just find some way to wish for that person's safety. May you be safe and protected. And then, then we turn toward their mind and we wish for their mind to be happy and peaceful. Then we reflect on their body and we wish that they be healthy, free from pain. And then we understand they've got a life to live. May you live your life with ease. May you take care of your life with ease and joy. Right? So moving through, taking care of their life situation in an easy way. And then we go back. May you be safe and protected. Now, those are the four traditional phrases. They're written down. Feel free to modify because the phrase, again, is just a placeholder for an authentic act of generosity. Out of your heart, connecting with this person, your memory, right? We're discovering that the heart is capable of giving something away. So instead of our normal needy, wanting, fearful states, right? We're cultivating this very beautiful state, way of being, where I can bring somebody to mind, I have an authentic, even if it's meek or mild, an authentic feeling of caring, of loving, wishing well for, and I'll prove it by acting it out. I'll actually send out a wish, and then I'll send out another wish. And, and I'm connecting to the meaning of the words, so I'm really noticing that the heart cares, heart wishes well. And it really flips the sort of needy, fearful, aversive frame of mind. And if you don't believe me, try it. And that's our homework, right? It's almost nine. So at least three times this week. Now, you could do this, for example, let's say you're sitting a half an hour most days. So you might take 15 minutes and do the loving-kindness practice for the first 15 minutes, and then the mindfulness practice for the second 15 minutes. If you can't figure out how you want to do it, just do it that way. There are many ways you can do it. You could just do only loving-kindness practice for the whole week. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that because you want to keep the momentum of the mindfulness practice. But if you've got a time and you're really interested, do your mindfulness practice in the morning, and then do another sit in the evening, and just do the loving-kindness practice for a half an hour. 
Now, there are different flavors of it, and you can read about them. There's compassion, there's joy, there's equanimity. These are different flavors of the basic instinct of loving kindness that is there in the heart. It just needs to be uncovered. It needs to be opened up, needs to be greased, loosened up, freed up. And sometimes that can be really painful. Like, I'll just leave us with this last image. One of my teachers uh, still comes to Common Ground once a year, usually from Hawaii, Kamala Masters. She talks about like if you squeeze your fist and you hold it like this for a couple years, and then you try to open your hand, it's going to hurt. But it will feel good too, right? And it's the same thing. Like if we've been living our life with a tight heart, stingy heart, fearful heart, and then we try to we do some things that start to loosen it up, it might really hurt. It might really like feel literally like something's busted open. That doesn't mean you're doing the practice wrong. It means actually you're doing what you're supposed to do. Remembering a person, feeling the heart center, sending out simple wishes. And then when the feeling of love is really strong, let go of the wishes for a while and just focus on that loving feeling in the heart. And then when it dissipates, it's more ordinary, then just pick up the phrases again and do them religiously during that period of time you're meditating. And then, of course, just like mindfulness you can take into your daily life, walking from your car to the office, brushing your teeth, you can do the loving-kindness phrases any time during the day. You could be seeing somebody in the bus, may you be safe. Just as I wish to be happy, may you be happy and peaceful. Just as I wish to be uh, healthy and free from pain, may you be healthy and free from pain. Anytime, especially with difficult relationships. So formally, and then play with it informally during the day. And well, next week when we do our half an hour sit, we'll do 15 minutes of the loving kindness and then 15 minutes of the, the mindfulness practice. So I'll give you some guidance. You can go online uh, to our website if you want a guided loving kindness practice. Um, you can get it at our website under the Dharma Talks, but you're going to have to scroll down until you find guided loving kindness practice. It may be a while back when it was recorded. If you have any questions, feel free to check in. It's nice to brush off the cushion, so it's nice and neat for the morning sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.